Financial shame is one of the most debilitating and personal forms of pressure that an individual can feel. It can prevent people from making critical decisions about their financial future, which leaves them feeling hopeless about their ability to ever improve their situation. While there are certainly personal choices that can contribute to financial shame, it's important to remember that there are also outside forces at play. For example, the way that financial institutions are structured creates a built-in disadvantage for consumers. These companies invest millions of dollars to develop systems that ensure profits continue to flow in ways that best serve them. As a result, people who are struggling to make ends meet often find themselves up against an insurmountable force. By taking the time to learn about the external factors that may be outside of your control, you can begin to make choices that best serve you. You don't have to like the game, but if you don't know the rules, you certainly won't be able to play the game to your advantage. This month, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the National Endowment for Financial Education. NEFI champions effective financial education. In honor of NEFI's big milestone, I've invited some of the staff from NEFI to discuss some of the most recent topics and statistics from polls they have conducted that are impacting the personal finance space. We'll also talk about how financial literacy helped shape their personal lives, both the good times as well as the tough moments. In the fifth and final part of our NEFI in November series, I welcome back President and CEO of NEFI, Dr. Billy Hensley, to discuss discrimination in the personal finance space and how NEFI is proactively shining a much-needed light on FinLit and financial education for all. To learn more about NEFI's article, Understanding Racial Trauma's Impact on Financial Literacy, visit nefi.org or click on the link in the show notes. I'm Bob Wheeler. And this is Money You Should Ask, where we explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. J. Hensley, PhD, is President and CEO of the National Endowment for Financial Education. Since his appointment in 2018, Dr. Billy has led NEFI through the development and execution of its first strategic plan, sharpening the organization's mission, vision, and core values, and cultivating broader transparency and effectiveness. He is charging the organization to redefine financial education through more focused philanthropy, research, and collaboration. Welcome back to the show, Billy. It's good to have you on again. I'm glad to be back. This isn't your first rodeo with us, but we know you serve as the CEO and president of NEFI, the National Endowment for Financial Education, for those who don't know what NEFI is. Can you tell us a little bit about NEFI and how its research is affecting the study of financial trauma? Yeah, so NEFI is an operating foundation. We're headquartered in Denver. We work nationally you know, our polls, things like that. What we're trying to do is understand and give more voice and more insight to multiple populations. You know, the thing about survey data is you lose a lot when you average, meaning if you survey a million people, the average is what's going to be the headline or the percent, but there may be in that million people, there may be a hundred thousand people who are experiencing something very vividly or negatively. And what we're trying to do is get to some of those populations, oversample those, if you will, or try to better understand those uh, in their context so that we can't just 
cater to the average that people from all different walks of life and backgrounds can be best served when it comes to financial education programming, financial literacy initiatives, and then financial well-being in general. Yeah, so it sort of sounds like a wider welcome and more inclusion if you're focusing a little bit of the folks on the fringe. That's right, because as we say at NEPI, if financial education doesn't work for everyone, it doesn't work. And so we're trying to better understand the experience of uh, multiple populations, whether that be tied to age, race, income level, socioeconomic status, geography, sexual orientation, and so forth. And do you think financial trauma is something that affects all of us? Like, how can we adjust the education of our children and make sure they don't experience the same things that we do? Well, <laughs> you remember that old ad, not your father's Oldsmobile? I don't right. know if you ever, a lot of your listeners probably won't remember that. I remember it. <laughs> What they were saying is that we've tried to update and modernize how we do business here. You know, mm -hmm. we're trying to give um, better understanding, change the product, if you will. For years, people looked at financial education in general as a one-size-fits-all topic. The voice of presenter, the voice of the curriculum writer, the voice of teacher, hey, it works for me, should work for you. Without sort of looking at the experience of people and how they approach the topic. So yes, I think everyone has some version of a financial trauma. I think particular populations and people from different backgrounds experience it more often and it's deeper rooted and there's a lot more obstacle tied to it. So it's not just shame and the finger pointing and look at you, you made all the wrong decisions and you did everything wrong and let's harp on what all you did wrong. Uh, instead of saying, you know, how do we move forward from here? How do, can you learn? How can you understand the context and begin to try to hopefully heal from some of that trauma so that you can see that financial education and personal finance in general is something for you and meant to help you grow and help you sort of have agency in your life. When you're talking about personal finances, it's very personal. It's very vulnerable. And I would imagine as you're looking at all this stuff, trust must play into the equation if we're going to move this forward. Right. Well, speaking of trust, you know, go into a personal finance course or a class or a workshop or you know, maybe a way to try to find some tips. And you're, you're coming in with that because you want to learn. You want to be better. You want to improve. You want to navigate the system. You want to save money. You want to make money. You know, there's a lot of reasons for that. But it's all coming from a place of improvement empowerment to try to better your life, if you will. Mm -hmm. But if your experience with that is blank, oh, well, you're poor, it's your fault. You made all the wrong decisions without really understanding the context or, hey, you bounced another check or not that people really write checks anymore. I still do, but <laughs> I write a few release two or three a month uh, or you overdrew or you have a late fee. You know, what the average consumer and what's not really covered in financial education courses is that Financial institutions are meant to be profit-driven. They're meant to make money. Even the nonprofit financial institutions are trying to stay open so they right. produce revenue, as much revenue as possible. And so what we don't say in financial education is that maybe you're not really called that bad with money. Maybe you as an individual and you as a person who maybe is making a lower income or you haven't climbed up the career ladder yet, you don't have enough resources to avoid that paycheck to paycheck space. 
And what we don't say in personal finance and financial education is that financial institutions spend hundreds of millions of dollars to create algorithms that hold pending purchases to the point of that they approve right at the point where you just happen to be historically every month, that's your lowest balance. So then they, and they know, hey, that's a late fee, that's an overdraft fee. Wow. And we don't say 40% of the profits of financial institutions at large are from those two things alone. And so there's a lot of incentives for computer algorithms, for financial institutions to actually process and reorder your purchases in a way that maybe helps them, not you. If we start to look at financial education from that point of view of like, this happens. So what are ways we can get over this? Or what are ways that we can understand going into it that, yeah, you've made financial mistakes. Yeah, you made quote, poor decisions. But it's not just your decisions. There's a lot of money to be made on that. And there's a lot of business practices that actually promote that in a way that you're not even aware of. So when people understand that, and when people like me, you know, I took out student loans. I went to a private college, uh, graduated with student debt. And, you know, we don't talk enough about college affordability, I don't think. But right. instead of trying to understand that that was actually an opportunity for me, that that small private education is what helped me get all these soft skills that I needed. I got to experience lots of things. I got all the encouragement that I needed to be able to be successful and launch. So instead of going into financial education with finger pointing and the guilt and the, oh, you did everything wrong and how we're going to dig you out of this and just saying, how do we move forward? You know, that was a priority that actually helped you graduate and graduate on time. You may have had some debt, but you gained a lot of other skills that you could refine that you may have lost if you'd gone to a huge institution that was, quote, subsidized. That's what I mean when I say, let's get voice to multiple people. Let's take the shame out of thin ed and let's, let's look at the big picture. Not just say, hey, you're poor and it's all your fault. How about as a society, Americans are struggling. Two-thirds of us live paycheck to paycheck. Let's dig into why that is for you in particular. And let's look at all the reasons for that. Not just the individual decisions you make for that. Absolutely. And to that point, Nefi did a poll. And the top factors among those who feel like they've experienced discrimination or felt like they're blocked from engaging in financial services or products was age, 48%. Yeah. Amount of wealth, assets, 37%. Ethnicity, 37%. Race, 27%. Gender identity, expression, 23%. And education, 23%. I mean, those, those seem like pretty high numbers, but how can regular everyday people interpret these numbers to empower them to bring about change in their own lives? Well, I, I think it's sort of examine your own experience and not carry that burden that you are, quote, bad with money. Maybe you have made some bad decisions. We, God knows I have. <laughs> but, you know, it's about saying we've all made bad decisions. Life is very expensive. There's a lot of companies, well, people and companies, I should say, that are trying to get every dollar you have. Right. And sometimes the way they do that is definitely not optimal for you at your bottom line. And so use it as a motivation to say, hey, this organization or this bank or this uh, store limited me, this financial planner wouldn't listen, you know, whatever that reason is that you felt unheard, whether it's you went into the bank and you were embarrassed because you only had $118 or you only had $23. I was there plenty of times, especially in my 20s. Yeah. 
and you feel judged and you feel ashamed by that. Look at it as we all come from that place and we all start at that place and we all get there. You know, what is it? We have multiple disruptions. You're, you're at a, like a 98% likelihood. I can't remember exactly the statistic of having at least 10% income disruption multiple times in your career. Wow. Laid off. You know, it's going to happen to us all. We're all might be flush one minute and strapped the next. So this is a, actually a very common thing uh, about uh, being an American citizen or, yeah. or a person that's trying to make their way in America. So we've all been at that place. We've all felt, oh, they're not going to listen to me because I'm young or they're not going to listen to me because I'm old uh, or older or they don't appreciate my experience or I'm not, quote, educated enough or I don't understand all this jargon you're using because we all know jargon is usually used to exclude and confuse <laughs> and confuse. And we think everyone understands the words we use. I mean, we do it. I do it every day. I think everyone knows exactly everything I'm saying and talking about. And then I get that polite, uh, I have no idea what you just said moment. Right. And I would love every consumer to say, I don't understand what you just explained. Let's, you know, I'd like to sort of reframe this in a different way because sometimes this discrimination or this bias maybe unconscious by the person in the institution. The institution may have been doing it, quote, always done it this way. And maybe they're not aware that the way they're right. doing business makes you feel this way. And I, you know, give voice to yourself. You can do that through online reviews. You don't have to be confrontational face-to-face. -face that's right. not your thing. I don't like confrontation. I don't think a lot of people do really, but use your voice online and say, or send an email to the president of the, of the bank or the owner of the shop and just make that clear that this is how you felt. I mean, the fact that 67% of non-Hispanic blacks and 54% of Hispanic adults have reported negative experiences. So when you look at that, you know, is it not the same service? I mean, I'm gay. I'm clearly gay. I've walked into places with my husband before and I've had clerks turn around and go to the back because I didn't want to serve and stay back there. Wow. You know, and then another worker kind of noticed it and sort of came over. I mean, I've experienced that many times in places and it makes you not even want to, you know, do business there. And you have all the feelings that go with that. But I just say it happens to a lot of us. You're not alone. Uh, and let's use our voice to say, do better. If you want my business, you're going to have to do better. And we do have choices as consumers usually. Yeah. And so there is discrimination out there and people experience it using their voices one way, but how are some other ways that people can help create or find a safe space, a financial space? Because you can give your voice or say, I'm not going to come back to business, but then how do you find those safe havens, the places that will welcome you in and actually hear you? Well, you know, look for discrimination statements, you know, that we don't discriminate based on, look at what they list. It matters what they list, at least to me, it matters. Mm -hmm. See how they do business, see how they respond to, you know, Black History Month, see how they respond to Hispanic Heritage Month and Asian American Pacific Islander Month. Look at what they do for pride. Look at what they do for uh, retirement awareness week planning. Look at what they do for college students. See how they serve particular communities see where their, where their locations are and look at it that way, because you can find, you know, your current institution may not be serving you well, but that doesn't mean that an institution down the street wouldn't serve you better. Yeah. See who's behind the counter, see who's present, see who they're hiring, you know, because if you feel seen, yeah, it may make you feel better. You know, if you see an ad with, with two women 
holding hands and you feel like you can't be yourself at your other institution and you see, you know, see how they're representing their work and how they're embodying those values. There's also a lot of really good bloggers that talk about this topic in particular. I think a discriminatory industry uh, organization, I should say, probably isn't funding uh, Black Lives and Money type podcasts, for example. Right. So see who answers that and give them your business and, and look at it that way. And I think those visual markers matter. They do to me. Yeah. I think they matter to a lot of people, whether they're you're conscious of them or not. When you see that, you feel, you feel represented, you feel heard. So I would suggest looking at that way as well. You know, what we're trying to do is make those institutions who maybe aren't aware of their own bias aware. That's why we do these surveys. You know, we want to do the survey, get the data and then promote it. So hopefully organizations can do better because I think a lot of institutions do want to do better Yeah. in terms of who they're serving. You know, they want, I would assume they want as many customers as possible. For sure. That's the point, right? If they know about this, maybe it makes them look back and say, if that's us, we want to see how can we do better. And so that's the role we're trying to play is to shed light on this, to bring awareness to this, because money is not a value-free thing. Uh, your relationship with money is not value-free. It's not a subjective science. It is value-driven. It's felt. We all have some version of trauma. We all have joy and happiness tied to it. And so that's how you bring yourself to it. And if your experiences are largely negative, then you're going to try to resist it. Maybe you don't even want to try to learn more because you're, quote, not a money person. But we're all money people. We all have to use it. So let's, you know, let's try to get as many voices present as possible. Absolutely. So look for folks that are walking the talk and encourage those that aren't to start walking. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and talking. Right. Yeah. I just have too many words to say that. You said it much better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Now, Nefi recently lent its voice to Chloe McKenzie, the founder of Black Femme. In her piece for Nefi, she notes that even after slavery was abolished, there were laws put in place limiting certain people from fully participating in the economy. She also notes that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. often referenced that freedom also meant the ability to determine our own economic destiny. Yeah. I mean, Chloe's a powerful writer. Mm -hmm. One of our staff members actually found her, some of her writing and just fell in love with what she was saying. And she's written some things that I, that I felt, I personally feel very seen by mm -hmm. and heard by and what she's doing, you know, she's the one that actually, I learned those statistics about some of the profits of banking and sort of what that means and, and the algorithms that are designed to sort of promote overdrawing and so forth. I actually learned that from her. She first started on Wall Street as an investment banker, I think is how she started. And then she started wow. seeing that the system of sort of blame, like, hey, you're poor and it's your fault without this full understanding of why entire regions, entire populations, entire races of people have less money and less wealth in this rich country we're in. There are reasons for it. So let's understand it. And so that's what I appreciate about her. And, you know, we brought her in as a visiting scholar and she wrote a piece about the financial trauma and what she was feeling as a new mom. You know, she just had a baby. Back in the spring, she wrote about that, and that was beautifully written. And I'm sure many moms felt heard and seen in that piece. And then this other piece about looking at, well, who doesn't think financial education is a good idea? Let's talk to them and see what they think. And it's, it's because of these financial traumas. It's because of the shame. It's because of the way it's been delivered historically. Uh, this sense of like 
power and blame and you're poor, but you've not really truly been given the same opportunities. So how can you say that financial education has been totally fair when you're using that as a means to financial success when people can't even fully participate in the economy? And when you take generations of people not being able to participate in the economy, I've talked to you about this before, about being an Appalachian, and you know, multiple generations of my ancestors were not paid money. They were paid script to use in something that the company owned to give money right back to the company. So how can you build wealth? How can you own property? How can you save for the future when you're not even paid? And so when you take multiple generations, like African-Americans, hundreds of years without being able to build wealth, and then you limit their participation in the economy. When people say that a lot of those laws and so forth changed 30, 40, 50 years ago, more access, more equal opportunity. But when you're so far behind already, and then you still are facing discrimination, and it's very clear in the survey that we did, when you're looking at 67% of Black, and then Black women more so, and Hispanic women more so than men, and, and women in general more than men, are still experiencing exclusion and, and being pushed aside, then it's taken generations for certain families to sort of build wealth and accumulate wealth, and in general, the average white family when you haven't had all of those generations to do that, how can you expect everyone to sort of, quote, catch up in one or two generations when they've had dozens of generations that have not been able to fully participate in the economy? And arguably, a lot of people still can't fully participate in the economy because of things like that. Yeah, and I think because of studies like that you do and these polls, you know, it's amazing to me that people still don't understand that the system has been intentionally rigged, that there was redlining, there might still be redlining, that banks do racial profiling on who they lend to based on the way a name sounds. And so if you're a person that's trying to get ahead and it feels very personal and you aren't aware that there's a systemic piece, that can be for some real crazy making because like I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I worked on my credit. You know, I had a client who they knew they had been bad with their finances and all that stuff, but then they were really good for five years and their credit score hadn't moved an inch, right? And they finally called up the credit people and they said, well, you know, you have a mortgage in Minnesota that you've been laid on and this and that. So somebody had stolen her identity. The banks knew about it wouldn't address it. And her credit score was all because somebody had used her social security number for some loans that they weren't paying on properly. And so she's going crazy because the system is not working in her favor. She's doing everything right. And she's still not moving ahead. And I think for a lot of people to start to understand that a lot of this stuff is not your fault. It's outside forces working against you. Right. And that's the thing about financial education and personal finance and financial well-being there is an element of choice here. We are making choices. Sometimes those choices cause us to have less money, cause us to run out of money at the end of the month. But that is not the only reason people are poor. It is not the only reason that entire communities of people aren't able to get ahead. You can't say to me that this entire region or this entire community or this entire zip code doesn't have agency enough to like work. That's stupid. I mean, it, it's just, it's, Let's just figure out how to fix this problem instead of blaming everybody and pointing fingers and saying, well, it worked for me. Why can't it work for you? And, just, and maybe saying, hey, it works differently for us. We're all different people and we need different kinds of support and we need to catch up 
a lot of people who've been held back for generations and generations and, and make that work for all. Because then if people have a choice to say, I want to do a particular career path or not, and then the training that it takes to get to that point. Yeah, you may have access to training, but if you're poor or you still have to work two jobs to keep food on the table, you know, there's a lot of other things going on in life. And, and it's, you know, life is expensive enough for the average family who doesn't have all these extra obstacles. So when you add those in, it's a complicated, messy system that has systemic issues that need to be addressed. We are just trying to show the story. We're trying to give voice to people who haven't been listened to and heard. And people like Chloe writing about this, Nefi publicizing, polling, and data. We're trying to understand where people are coming from. When you truly have choice, when you truly have agency, then personal financial education works really well. And it's an important component of your financial life. But you can know all the answers. You can be even a certified financial planner. But if you have no clients, you have no income, it doesn't do you any good. And so that's the point we're trying to make is to say there are people being held back. People are paid less just based on their background, their race, things they can't help where they grew up, things like that. And so the more clear we can be about this and the better data we can get our hands on and advocate for, hopefully the practice of financial education improves. Hopefully the financial services sector steps up to the plate and better serves all of their customers, all of their potential customers. Hopefully we have better policies in place so that every family has an opportunity to elevate their next generation. That's what we want to see. Yeah. And it's been great that there's all this information that you're providing so we can start to see trends and and be able to compare and see how we're progressing. Now, talking about Chloe, she uh, had a focus group and a student said, Racism and structural oppression will always inform more of my experiences than learning how to budget. Do you feel this student was far off in their estimation based on the world we live in today? Well, absolutely not. I mean, that student was speaking their truth. And the problem that we have as a community of financial educators, not all of us. I mean, I just think, I think we need to listen. That is this person's experience. That, that student gave voice to thousands hundreds of thousands of other people who have a similar background or a similar experience. Why are we not listening to them? Why are we not trying to change the way we provide financial education so that they feel present? And part of that is a conversation about all of these things that have happened in the past that led to the reason that Black families have one-tenth of the wealth of white families. There's a reason for that. Let's discuss it. And the more we understand that as educators, the more we understand that as individuals, the more that student, that child, that person with all this potential, the more they see and understand that, maybe it gives them the confidence they need because they know it's not just them. They're not bad with money necessarily. They just have a lot of extra things to overcome right. to make it even harder to build wealth for that next generation. Let's listen. Why do we not believe? You know, I wrote an op-ed a couple of years ago. And I said something in it like, why are we not listening when 44 million Americans are saying something is a problem? Why do we just dismiss that as that? Well, I don't feel it personally. It must not be. It's not really a problem. We're just wiping that away. 
I think that's the number. 44 million African-American people live in this country. I may be completely wrong on that number. That's just my bad memory recalling that. But if they're saying this very clearly, we focus on one or two Black voices who don't agree that that's an issue. Instead of the 99.9% of people are saying, listen to us. This is a problem. There's an economic inequality, structural history, current practice that is happening that is keeping us from reaching our full financial potential. If we don't listen to them as financial educators, as financial bloggers, as advocates, as good neighbors, as friends, as family, how can we better the system? So listen to them. Believe them when they say this is an issue. Believe them when they say all of these other things that I bring into the classroom are going to skew or give a certain voice or a certain lens to how I perceive what you're saying in personal finance. That's what we need to be talking about when it comes to personal finance. It's not an excuse. It's an explanation for where we are. And let's discuss how to get better. But in the meantime, let's use financial education to help people navigate the system that exists. It doesn't mean the system is fair. It doesn't mean that it's set up in a way that promotes uh, true advancement. It doesn't mean that it's designed in a way that allows for the next generation to have a better quality of life financially or even health-wise, but it helps navigate the system and helps, hopefully, you, you can see better the issues that are there. And then, and while we're hopefully creating a better system and a more equitable, fair system, then why can't we learn as much as we can about personal finance and give context to it so that every young person, every old, every person, period, and in particular, younger people see their voice present in financial education so that they can feel heard in financial education and they can bring their full self to the room. And then maybe they'll approach the topic and be more, more interested in learning the topic while we hopefully are also creating a better system, a stronger economic system for all of us, no matter what zip code we grew up in, no matter what color or skin is, no matter what our sexual orientation is, so that we have the same opportunity and we truly have choice. Absolutely. And I think for people not feeling heard, find the courage to even have your voice, even if it's shaking. <laughs> like That's right. Move forward. And even if you move forward scared, move forward. And, and you're not alone. You are not alone. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Billy, we are at the Fast Five, and the Fast Five is brought to you by NEFI, the National Endowment for Financial Education. NEFI champions effective financial education. They are an independent, centralizing voice providing leadership, research, and collaboration to advance financial well-being. So, Dr. Billy, if your bank account could talk, what would it say? Uh, you've gotten much better at managing impulse purchases. I love that your that your money talks to you positively. <laughs> it's not shaming yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am an optimist. So I love that. Now, are you already preparing for holiday spending and holiday shopping? I'm not actually. No. Are you a last minute uh, holiday shopper? I'm a sort of post Thanksgiving, sort of early December shopper. Okay, that's still good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. I sometimes push it to the deadline. How much do you typically spend when you're deciding to treat yourself? Oh, gosh. I guess when I'm treating myself, it's usually food or a trip. So, you know, that could be as little as going through and getting a large order of fries at McDonald's, you know, which is like two bucks or whatever. 
<laughs> to going to a really good, you know, steak place, like splurging on a, you know, like a hundred dollar per person meal. Um, I do that occasionally too, but that's how I celebrate milestones and getting through things like the Nephi Bard, maybe for example, which is, you know, it's a lot of work to get there. And that's not big on the Nephi or the board or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's a lot of work when you get past it. Hey, we did it. Let's go. Let's celebrate. Yeah. What's your savings kryptonite? Oh gosh. Well, you're probably looking for a, a, something that I dip into my savings for, but I think mine is the fact that it's so easy to move it. <laughs> from my savings to my checking with like two clicks. It is too easy. There's no danger for me. I feel like I need a separate savings account at a bank that I don't have an app yep. for. <laughs> now, I recommend that yeah. to people. I recommend it to my clients because I did the same thing. And a lot of people's savings account is just their overdraft protection and it's not really savings. Yeah. So get it to another bank where you, it takes a while to cash that money out. So you're actually saving it. Yeah. But that's great. I that's a good point. When do you feel the most grateful to have money? When I need to repair something at my home. <laughs> That's a good time to have money. You know, that feeling of like, I don't know how to do this. I know how to fix a few things, but when it's something big and you're like, oh gosh, or you have an accident and you have to do the deductible, that is that moment of feeling relief because I don't have to deal with a broken oven for three weeks or until my next payday kind of thing. Yeah. And I think we've all been there when the money's not there. Oh yeah. And yeah, you just, that, uh, I appreciate it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I felt it vividly. Yes, absolutely. Well, we are at the M&M sweet spot, uh, money and motivation. Do you have a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom you could share with our listeners? Oh gosh. I know you probably get this one a lot. Uh, sleep on it. I love it. Yeah, because a lot of times the next day I'm clearer about a lot of things in life, yeah. but in particular, a big purchase or like a car, you know, I'm a car person yeah. and, you know, sometimes it's the sleep on it and you really know if you're ready for it or not. Yeah. And to that piece as well, the other thing I used to do, cause I had trouble saying no, when people try and no, no, you need to buy it. You need to buy it. I would say, oh, well, I got to talk to my business partner. I got to ask my parents. Uh, my grandparents review everything I do. So I always blame a third party that's not there. And they'll usually go, oh, I get it. I get it. You know, I'm like, my grandparents, man, they like, they give me grief. Yeah. I think when I was younger, I probably would have leaned into that more. And anymore, I'm just like, I guess the older you get, the more confidence you have. And you're just kind of like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'll think about it and let you know tomorrow. And that's the end of the step. That's it. We're done. <laughs> I agree. I think it gets easier as you get older. Well, Dr. Billy, I appreciate today because I think what Nefi's doing is great. It's so important, I believe, that we find the wider welcome, that we make space for everybody. And the more we can look at those folks that are on the fringe, that have been marginalized, the more we can bring in everybody because it's not necessarily their fault. And most likely it's not. Circumstance and things beyond their control have dictated their lives. And so the more that we can widen that welcome, the world's a better place. Right. And so I so appreciate what you're doing. Where can people learn more about Nefi? Sure. Our website's the best place, nefe.org. Or you can go follow us on Twitter at nefe underscore org. Well, Dr. Billy, I so appreciate it. And we're excited that uh, November is Nefi in November. So lots to learn from Nefi. Thank you so much. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us. Ba-da-ba-da-ba. Bum, 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 ba-da-ba-da-ba.